So for those that were here last night, uh, I shared with you just how uh, important in my life Rabbi Feinstein has been as a, as a teacher and a mentor and a colleague now for going on 30 years. Um, more than teacher and mentor, Rabbi Feinstein is a mensch. And I want to tell you a bit about his menchiness because in the midst of our Torah service, Rabbi Brown was leading our Tat Shabbat service, and Rabbi Feinstein snuck out and went in there and told a story um, with our kids, which is not something most scholars and residents who come up here and three lectures and that's it and I get time off and pay for my taxi, but none of those things Rabbi Feinstein brought up. It's not what a lot of scholars would do. Rabbi, thank you very much. Thank you. It's my pleasure to invite our Darshan this morning for a little more Torah, Rabbi Ed Feinstein. Good morning. Shabbat Shalom. You have the most adorable children in this congregation. So with due respect to the adults of the congregation, I couldn't bear not having spent some time with them. Um, thank you very much to the rabbis, to the uh, leadership of the community um, for inviting me to spend Shabbos in beautiful sunny Vancouver. Um, <laughs> thank you um, to the members of the Torah study group. We had a wonderful conversation this morning. And to Jerry and to the entire group, uh, our, our blessings on 25 years of continued learning Torah, Mazel Tov. This morning, I would like to do something very, very dangerous. But I'm a professional. Don't try this at home. Let professionals like me handle this. This morning, I'd like to bring you good news. <laughs> Jews don't like good news. Jews are allergic to good news. Jews can't stand good news. Let me try. Let me just try. Jews, Jews are always waiting for the next shoe to drop. Jews always see behind every silver lining there's a cloud. Abba Ibn, the great Abba Ibn said that the Jewish people are the only people in the world who will refuse to take yes for an answer. <laughs> Jewish telegram says, worry, details will follow. You know, this is who Jews are. There's a story about a guy who goes to his dentist and he sees a stack of magazines in the corner of the dentist office, and there are these viciously anti-Semitic magazines. And when the dentist comes out to see him, he says, why do you read this stuff? And the dentist says, I have heart problems. He says, well, why does that have to do with anti-Semitism? He says, I used to read the Jewish press. What do you read in the Jewish press? The Jews are disappearing, Israel is threatened, there's problems in the world. It gave me heart troubles. So now I read the anti-Semitic press. What do you read? The Jews control all the banks. The Jews control all the media. He says, you know, it's easier for my heart to read by them and not by us. <laughs> the truth is we just want bad news. So I'm going to try to suspend that for about 10 minutes and ask you to consider the following. That not only is it not true, but the, there's actually a deep moral problem with always speaking the language of crisis. There's a problem in our, in our, in our being when all we can see is, the, is, the, is a crisis because it blinds us for the miracles that are just ahead of us. Now, to be sure, what everyone wants to know is, is the Jewish people disappearing? Are we assimilating out of existence? And you know, that's a, th there are certain demographics which demonstrate those things as facts. It's true. But the problem is that that's only half the story. And that's the part that we have to grasp very carefully. That's the part we have to come to understand. In 1964, Look Magazine, which uh, at the time was the second most popular magazine in the United States after Life Magazine, 
Look Magazine in April 1964 published a cover article called The Vanishing American Jew. And it was written by the senior editor named Thomas B. Morgan. And Morgan gathered all the demographic data about American Jewish life. And he said, look, in America, in, in, in the United States at least, um, ethnic groups last three generations. You have the generation of the immigrant. You have the generation of first settlement, their kids. And then you have a third generation. And by the fourth generation, we disappear. Every ethnic group disappears. If you go to Chinatown in any American city, there's nobody Chinese who lives there. It's all run by Latinos now, right? Because in every fourth generation, we become part of the sort of flow of the, of the, of, of the population. And he said in 1964 that by 1980, the American Jewish population will be severely attenuated. And by the turn of the millennium, by 2000, there'll be virtually no Jews in North America. Now, here's the interesting thing. Look Magazine is gone. <laughs> and we're still here. Now, why is that? Why is that? Nobody could have predicted that we would have American Jewish settlement into its fifth and sixth generation. And that's what's happening. I mean, the famous joke is that, you know, 100 years ago, Avram Chaim and Surafega came from the old country and settled, you know? And they gave birth to Muriel and Morris, who gave birth to, to, uh, to Stephanie and Steve, right? Who gave birth to Brett and Jennifer, who gave birth to Taylor and Mackenzie who just came to my nursery school in my synagogue and enrolled their children, Avram Chaim and Surafega. <laughs> Something very odd is going on in this community, which is a counter trend to the narrative of assimilation. There's something odd in which we've defied the sociological wisdom, it's called Hansen's Law, which demands that every third, fourth generation ethnic group disappear. Something else is going on. And I'd like to try to describe that for you today. You see, there are two narratives by which we can read the Jewish story. Typically, when we read the Jewish story, we read it as a story of continuity. We gain a sense of our authenticity and a sense of, 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 our, of, our, of, our, of our being in the world from looking backwards and seeing ourselves as an unbroken chain of generations all the way back to Abraham and Sarah. We trace our ancestry to Abraham and Sarah and Rebecca and Isaac and Jacob and Rachel and Leah and Moses and Aaron and Miriam, back to Isaiah and Jeremiah and Echezkel, back to Hillel and Shammai, Rabbi Akiba and Rabbi Shmuel and Abai and Rava, back to the great Geonim, back to the great scholars of the Middle Ages, to the Rambam and to Rav Sadia and the Halevi, back to the Baal Shem Tov, we trace our ancestry, our, our intellectual ancestry, back to Mendelssohn. And into modernity, we say this is who we are, and we are part of a chain of generations passing forward a tradition that we received from our past. And under this narrative of continuity, of tradition, our job is not to create anything too new. Our job is to receive from the past and pass it on faithfully to the future. And the anxiety that goes with that is the anxiety of whether my grandchildren will take this as seriously as my grandparents did. 
And every generation under this narrative has suffered that anxiety. It was the historian Simon Ravidovich at Brandeis University who wrote a landmark essay about the Jewish people called the ever-dying people. And he said in every single generation, the Jewish people thought it was the last because they thought that their kids and their grandkids would never take it as seriously as their ancestors did. But Ravidovich said there's something strange, which is that every generation, the ever-dying people is also the ever-renewing people. And that's because there's a counter-narrative. There's an alternative narrative, which is a narrative about discontinuity. And that narrative is also true. And here's how the narrative goes. It says that in certain moments of our history, events from outside or developments from within necessitated a rethinking of the Jewish project, a reimagination of the mission of Jews in the world, a reinterpretation of our core values, a retelling of our narrative, a reinvention of Jewish institutions. And that at these key moments of history, if we had simply stuck with what we did before, we would have died as a people. Because at these key moments, it was necessary to change the whole self-understanding of the people and change the way that its values are passed forward. At these key moments, if we kept doing it, we would have died because what got us here wouldn't get us there. At these key moments, we found leaders who had sufficient wisdom to recognize that something new was needed, sufficient courage to put forward what was new, and sufficient inventiveness to figure out what that new was. These moments of discontinuity have defined us every bit as much as the moments of continuity. In fact, if you really look at the tradition, the great books of the tradition were not written at moments of stable continuity. When things are stable, you don't write a book. The great books of the tradition are the products of these crises of discontinuity. The Bible comes from the exodus from Egypt and from the exile to Babylon. The Talmud comes from the destruction of the Holy Temple and our, and our exile into diaspora. Maimonides comes from our confrontation with Arabic-Greek philosophy. The Zohar, the great text of Jewish mysticism, comes from the destruction of Spanish Jewry and the exile to, uh, to, to, into, into a Spanish, a Sephardic diaspora. Zionism comes from the collapse of enlightenment and the idea of Jews would be emancipated into full citizenship of Israel. The great books of the Jewish tradition were created as monuments to the new that we embraced in the face, in the shadow of a moment of discontinuity. It is the genius of this people to be able to reinvent itself at moments of discontinuity. And what we face today is not a crisis of continuity. What we face today is the opportunity of discontinuity. Now let's go back into our history for just a moment and understand how this works. So I want to bring you back to the most profound moment of discontinuity before modernity came. And that was the year 70. Let's go back just a little before that. In 64 BCE, the great general Pompey, the Roman general Pompey, comes and controls Jerusalem and its environs and creates of Jerusalem and environs a Roman, 
a Roman province called Judea. The Romans gave the governance of this province because it was such a rich place to friends of the emperor. They never sent terrific governors. They sent people who bribed the emperor to become the governor of this province. So they were terrible governors. So in the year 67, after zero, 67, the Jews of Judea revolted against the Romans. They stood up and they destroyed the Roman garrison in the fortress of Antonia, which was at the north end of Jerusalem, and they declared themselves independent. Now, the Romans freaked out at this because they had on their eastern frontier the Persians, the Parthian Empire, and they were worried that if Judea collapsed, then there would be nothing to hold the Persians from invading the eastern end of the empire. So the Romans needed to do something and do something decisive. They pulled their most powerful legion, the 10th legion, out of Gaul, their best general, Vespasian, put them on ships, sailed them to Phoenicia, to Lebanon, where they disembarked and then began marching down the coast, destroying and burning everywhere, turned left at Jaffa, came up into the hills, and encircled the city of Jerusalem. On the 17th day of, of Tammuz, they broke through the walls of Jerusalem, and on Tishabab, on the ninth day of Av, they destroyed the city of Jerusalem. This is a terribly un-Roman thing to do because Romans typically only want your taxes. They don't need to destroy your city. And they would never destroy a holy building. Only a monotheist will kill you for your religion. Pagans are fairly multicultural about these things. But the Romans destroyed the holy temple of Jerusalem and they destroyed the city of Jerusalem because they wanted to make an example of what happens if you defy the emperor. They changed the name, by the way, they changed the name of the province from Judea to Palestine. And that's where you get the name Palestine. It was a Roman name change in order to erase all trace the Jews had ever lived there. Now think about how this looked in the eyes of a typical Jew. For those who survived the catastrophe, the Temple of Jerusalem was the most beautiful building in the world. It was a brilliant cube of white marble with a golden crown. It was so beautiful that tourists came from all over the empire just to see it. Busloads of Japanese tourists came to see the Temple of Jerusalem because it was that beautiful. It was a place where, where, where our worship was, sacrifices were offered. It was the place where the courts met. It was the place where the academies sat. It was a symbol of Jewish life, but most of all for Jews who lived at that moment, it was the connection between heaven and earth. This was the place where heaven and earth kissed. And in the middle of that temple was a room called the Holy of Holies. That was the room that held the Ark of the Covenant that uh, Moses built in the desert and Harrison Ford found in the movie. <laughs> but in the second temple, the room was empty. It was only filled with the presence of God. And the only person who ever went into that room was the high priest on Yom Kippur. After spending a month getting ready, he would go in to beg for the welfare of his people. And they so believed that God lived in that room that before he went in, they tied a rope around his leg in case the poor guy would drop dead in the middle of the ritual, no one else would have to risk their life going in. They could schlep him out. God lived in that building, and all of a sudden, on one afternoon in August of the year 70, the building is destroyed. The city is destroyed. The priests are murdered. The altars are torn down. The ritual objects are taken away to Rome. Everything that was sacred to Jews was destroyed. 
You can imagine what that looked like. It's the Holocaust of its moment. Now, what happened next? That's what's interesting. The survivors, what did the survivors do? I'm sure there were a bunch of them who said, this proves there is no God. The Romans are right. And they became Romans. And they disappeared from our history. A few of them followed the nation church that had predicted this was going to happen. You, did, you disrespected, you, you, you killed God's Messiah, so they became Christians. But for those who didn't want to leave Judaism, how could they go on being Jewish? So they went down to, to the town of Yavne. There was one great Jewish teacher, Yochanan ben Zakkai, who had escaped from the city cut a separate piece with the Romans, built a Hebrew school down in a place called Yavne. And the, the survivors went down to be with him, to ask him this question, because he was the last Jedi. Here was our Skywalker, down there on the coast. And the, and the, and the survivors surrounded him, and they asked him this question. Anyone speak a little Aramaic? They asked him, V. Gates, where do we go now? What do we do now? We have no temple. We have no priests. We have no sacrifices. We have no city. We have no place in the world which is ours anymore. We have no home. And they must have asked him the most bitter of all questions. Does God hate us? Did God let his city be destroyed, his temple be destroyed, his priests be murdered because God hates us? Do we have a future? Do we have a covenant? You have to understand how, how, how mind-blowing this was. Does God hate us? Now, there is no literary tradition about what Rabbi Yochanan said in response. You can imagine what he had in front of him. He could have offered three answers. He could have said to them, this is the end. This is the end of the Jewish project. Pack it in and go home. Go find something better to do with your time. And that would have been the end of the Jewish project. And that would have been the reasonable thing to say. You see your temple, your city, your priests, everything sacred to you destroyed, you say it's over. Or he could have said a more conservative kind of thing. He could have said, wait, wait. God will have his revenge against the Romans. God destroyed the Pharaoh. God will destroy the Romans. And how long would we have waited? One generation? Maybe two generations? What did he say? Well, nobody knows, because it's never been written down. Nobody knows what he said, except me. I happen to know. And I'll tell you what he said, because he left it. He did leave it, but you have to go look for it. You see, 100 years after Rabbi Yochanan, they're going to gather up all the teachings of his students and his students' students in a book. And that book is called the Mishnah. Now, every book of the Mishnah is filled with law. It's all Jewish law. And every book of the Mishnah is filled with controversy. This rabbi says this, and this rabbi says that. There's only one book of the Mishnah which has no law and no controversy, which is a signal to you that it's a special book. It's called Pirkei Avot, Ethics of the Fathers, Ethics of the Ancestors. I think Pirkei Avot is the handbook left by Rabbi Yochanan and his colleagues about how do you rebuild post-Holocaust Judaism. So take a look with me. I gave you three Mishnayot from Pirkei Avot. It's on the sheet. What did Rabbi Yochanan say? Number one, there's a prologue. I love that. This is how rabbis always talk, right? Before I give my talk, I have a few things I want to say. So there's a prologue. 
And what's the prologue? Number one, all Israel have a portion in the world to come. Kol Yisrael yeshlem chelek le'olam What word is the most radical word in that sentence? Answer, all. Why? Because we Jews are really good at making distinctions. You can imagine Jews would say, all Jews are, have a portion of the world to come, except the Orthodox, except the Reform, except the ones who daven in the other shul. We're good at that. You know, I don't know if you know this, but there's, like, we're just really good at that. But Rabbi Yochanan says, stop that. Whoever you were in Jerusalem before the destruction is now irrelevant. Whatever binds us, whatever divides us is irrelevant. We must be one. We must have one national identity. We must make room for each other. All Israel is acceptable. All Israel will have salvation. All Israel will be redeemed. All of us are welcome. Whatever your background, whatever your politics, whatever your party, whatever your faith, you have a place. The first principle of post-Holocaust Judaism is radical inclusivity. Second, Moshe Rekibel Torah Misinai. Moses got the Torah at Sinai, gave it to Joshua, to the elders, to the prophets, to the men of the great synagogue. The subject of that sentence is Torah. Torah now becomes the center of our being. If you want a little bit of a drasha, we go from Beit Mikdash to Beit Midrash. We go from a holy place where God is worshipped and sacrificed to a holy place where we encounter God in the words of Torah. And now the wonderful thing about, about Torah is that you can do it anywhere. You can do it anywhere. Vancouver becomes Jerusalem as long whenever we open that ark and take out the Torah. Vancouver becomes Jerusalem whenever we gather as ten to learn together. Vancouver becomes the center of the universe whenever we study. Torah becomes the center. And so they taught these, these guys, again, the men of the great synagogue, be patient in the administration of justice. Litigate Torah so that it becomes a way of life for the community. Rear many students, teach it to your children, and build a fence around it. Legislate when you need to. Be creative in the application of Torah to the conditions and exigencies of your life. It's the next one I wanted to get to. This is the real one. Shimon Atzadik was Rabbi Yochanan's grand, grand teacher, his great-great-grand teacher. And he said something. We just sang it a moment ago, the cantor led us in this music. The world stands on three things. On Torah, on Avodah, and on practice of kindness. There's two statements in that sentence. Number one, the world stands. That in itself is radical. Because the people came to Rabbi Yochanan and they said, our world has collapsed. Our world has collapsed. And by the way, it wasn't just metaphorical. It wasn't just metaphorical. The Temple of Jerusalem was built on a stone, a piece of limestone. It was called Evan Hashtia, the foundation stone of the universe. When the Romans destroyed the temple, the way that you destroy a limestone building is by building a big fire around it. And as the limestone, limestone is calcium carbonate, it has little pockets of air in it. As it gets hot, it explodes. The temple wasn't torn down, the temple was blown up. And they thought that Evan Hashtiah blew up. They thought that the foundation stone of the universe blew up, because that's what they saw. I mean, they literally thought the world was knocked off its axis. 
Turns out it wasn't. Turns out the rock survived. And today, it's under that very attractive golden dome in Jerusalem, which is known as the dome of the Altazoi. There's the rock. But they thought it was gone. They really thought the world had been knocked off its axis. Not just that, but they were, they were out of kilter. Because look, which way do we daven? When we, when we pray, which way do we face? East. East is orient. East is orient. If you're in Jerusalem, which way do you face? Toward the Temple Mount. Toward the Temple Mount, even if it's a different direction. That's how you are. East is orient. You are oriented. Lose the temple, and you have a bad case of disorientation. Get it? So when Rabbi Yochanan says to them, Ha'olam omei, kids, you didn't lose your world. You didn't lose God. You didn't lose the covenant. You didn't lose the orientation of your life. You just lost the building in Jerusalem. But now we need to rebuild Jewish life on new foundations, no longer on temple and sacrifice and priests. Now it's going to be based three things. Torah, avodah, gemilut, chasadim. Torah. Torah now becomes the core of every Jewish community. So every Jewish community has a school, a Beit Midrash. But school doesn't mean what we mean in English. In English, school is a place you drop your kids off in the morning and pick them up all starched and educated in the afternoon. It's like dry cleaning. That's not how school works in Judaism. In Judaism, school is a place for grown-ups. When Tevye dreams of being a rich man, I'll sit and study holy books seven hours every day. That would be the sweetest thing of all. In America, you go to school to make a living. In Judaism, you make a living so you have time to go sit in school. Because learning is the greatest thing you can do as a human being. Kids were allowed in the school, but only in a side room until they gained literacy. And the word for side room is cheder. Did anybody go to cheder as a kid? That's where you learned enough to enter the Beit Midrash so you could sit with the grown-ups and really learn. I have a book in my library that was a gift from somebody in my shul. My father's a baker. And my family, part of my family comes from, from uh, Belarus. So I have a book in my library. It's, it says, the, the Baker's Mishnah Circle of Bialystok. Translation, <clears throat> every guild of craftsmen had a learning circle. The baker, my dad's a baker, he gets up at 2 o'clock in the morning, works until 3, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and then the bakers of Bialystok, before they came home to clean up and have dinner, would go to the base midrash and learn for an hour. And this was the text that they used. This was the baker's Mishnah circle of Bialystok. They'd learn for an hour, because having killed yourself, having beaten up your body working all day, you needed to enrich your soul before you could step into the house. School meant learning. Learning is a lifelong preoccupation of Jews. Avodah used to be sacrifice in temple. Now what is it? It's verbal prayer, which we do where? In synagogue, Beit Knesset. So it's Beit Midrash, Beit Knesset, and the third one, Gimilut Chesed. Where do you learn Gimilut Chesed? Where do you learn kindness? Where do you learn charity? Where do you learn spiritual generosity? Where? At home. The Bible has very little to say about your home. It's all about kings and prophets, priests. 
It's the Talmud that develops an ideology of the Jewish home. It's the Talmud that gives us the symbols of Jewish home because home now becomes part of this, tr this, this trilogy, this trinity of institutions that now carry forward the covenant. And home now becomes the place where character is shaped. Home now becomes the place where we pass, pass on our identity. There's a wonderful book called The Jew in the Lotus. Anyone ever see this book? In 1990, the Dalai Lama, who was the exiled leader of Tibetan Buddhism, invited a delegation of Jews to meet him in his study center in Dar es Salaam, India, because he wanted to ask them a singular question. Your people have survived exile for 2,500 years. How'd you do it? The Dalai Lama was thrown out of Tibet in 1958, I think. And he's been leading his people in exile, and he wants to know from the Jews how did... So each of these scholars, all these famous scholars, came to tell him, and at the end of the conversation, Blue Greenberg, who is Rabbi Yitz Greenberg's brilliant wife, she said to him, Your Eminence, the home, the Jewish home, that's how we survive. And this is the one answer that captured the Dalai Lama's imagination, because there's no such thing as a Buddhist home. They don't put mezuzahs on their doors. I don't know if you knew this. But there is such thing as a Jewish home, and you know what that is, and this is where we teach being, right? And what was so brilliant is what the rabbis did was that they took the affectations, the symbols of the holy temple that were now gone, and they put them in your home. And you know this. You just don't know that you know this. Last night, when you sat down at your table, you had candles, and you had wine, and you had what? Challah in my neighborhood, $19, gluten-free, high-protein, high-fiber, imported Belgian chocolate, Indonesian cinnamon, Ecuadorian basil challah. I live in Southern California. Jews are a little weird there. The word challah doesn't mean bread. The word challah is the name of a sacrifice that was offered in the Holy Temple. Bread was offered as a sacrifice in the temple. That's why it's on your table. Now, you made your bench lick, you lit the candles, you made kiddush, and then before you ate the challah, you had to do two things. What's the first thing you did? You washed your hands, and you made a bracha. Where in the Bible are you commanded to wash your hands? The answer is, you're not. Who is commanded to wash his hands before he eats a sacrifice? The priest. You become the priest. Your table becomes an altar. The food becomes an offering. And then you lift up this beautiful $19 gluten-free, high-protein, high-fiber, imported Belgian chocolate, Indonesian cinnamon, Ecuadorian basil challah. You made motzi, a motzi lechem in aretz, and before you ate it, you did one more thing. You covered it in salt. Why is that? Because Jews have to have heart problems, right? <laughs> because every sacrifice at the temple was offered with salt. In other words, the temple sacrificial worship, which was destroyed by the Romans in 70, lives on in your house. You become the priest. The table becomes your altar. The meal becomes your offering. And all of us together, we become Am Yisrael, gathered in the holy place. Your home becomes the holy of holies. In the face of a moment of discontinuity, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai reinvented Judaism. 
And that's the Judaism that we keep. It's not the Judaism of the Bible. It's the Judaism of the, that the rabbis reinvented, and they reinvented it again and again and again because this is the genius of the Jewish people. The genius of the Jewish people is its capacity to meet these moments of discontinuity with creativity, with courage, and with wisdom because God isn't finished with us. So here's my sermon. Don't speak the language of crisis. Yes, I know there are Jews who aren't here in Shul this Shabbos. Do you have Costco here in Vancouver? Right. You'll find more Jews at Costco this morning than you will in Shul. Right? They worship in a different way. They also have sacrifices, but that's another story. And, and, and we can cry that and we can cry for that, but the fact that you've come this morning and your children are here this morning is a great miracle that no one could have predicted. It's a great miracle that no one could have imagined that we have a state of Israel with all of its tsaris. They can't make a government. Can you imagine this? Jews can't make a government? That's what happens when you run a, when you run a, when you run a state like a synagogue, right? Right? Yes. And there's anti-Semitism that's rising about the world. Yes, all of that's true. But you see, here's the problem. If you say to your children and to your children's children, oh my God, oy vey, why on earth would they want to sign on? So look at this from the other point of view. We're living through a moment of discontinuity. And in the moment of discontinuity, we create new moments of Jewish life new expressions of Jewish faith, new creativity, new forms of Jewish life. And look, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to embarrass these people. A dying people doesn't create brilliant people like this. I mean, I know Rabbi Moskowitz a very long time, and I've Rabbi Brown now, and I've read the Cantor. A dying people doesn't create attractive, powerful minds like theirs, creative souls like theirs. A dying people doesn't create this kind of leadership. This is the evidence that God isn't done with us yet. The crisis isn't a crisis. It's an opportunity to reinvent. And the question is whether we can hear that voice in this moment of history. The great genius of the Jewish people is that hearing that voice at every moment of discontinuity, we managed to recreate a Judaism that was ready for that generation. And we will do it again. That's the great truth of the Jewish people. I wish you a really good Shabbos. Wow. <laughs> like my entire rabbinical school in like 20 minutes. Um, but I understood it this time. 586 will rise a lenu.